I would like to welcome you to the Shipowners PI Club podcast series. I'm Simon Swallow, the Chief Executive of the club, and I would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcasts, which we believe offer an exciting new way of delivering relevant and insightful content to our members and their brokers and to the many other stakeholders who work with and support the operations of the club, such as our global PI correspondence. Covering a range of topics with guest speakers from different backgrounds across the maritime and insurance industry, and with a special focus promoting safety of life and property at sea, we hope that you will find the discussions with our club representatives interesting and useful to you in your own operation. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nicola Kingman, Manager of the Yacht Syndicate at Ship Owners. Welcome to episode two of the Yacht Fire podcast. In this episode, Charlie Cooper, our loss prevention executive, will be discussing technical issues surrounding yacht electrical fires from a surveyor's perspective with Anthony Beveridge of Aqualis Braemar. Hello, I'm Charlie Cooper, loss prevention executive at Ship Owners Club. Today, we welcome Anthony Beveridge, a staff surveyor at Braemar. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Please can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience within the industry. My training is electrical electronic engineering, worked my way up going to courses, paying for them myself with nautical colleges in the UK. And I slowly got my qualifications and I ended up 15, 20 years later, having uh, satisfied all the requirements to be a, a, an unrestricted chief engineer, 3000 kilowatts, which at the time was the, uh, the biggest ticket you could do. But along the way, I have a family now live in South Florida. So I came shore based, worked for Fraser Yachts for five years as a yacht manager after spending 18 years at sea. And then after working for Fraser Yachts Yacht Management for five years, Aqualis Braemar, as they're now called, they recognized a good thing when they saw it and they uh, they asked if I wanted to uh, try working with them for a while. So that's my, my background. Nice. So it sounds like from, in terms of when you started your career, you kind of did your electrical background and then your yachting experience. So kind of you're, you're kind of the perfect uh, guest for this your Electrical Fires podcast. So uh, moving on, uh, can you share with us some details of a relevant incident you've seen to do with uh, your electrical fire? I was called out about three years ago to a marina in just north of Fort Lauderdale in, in Florida. And one 70-foot sports fishing boat had gone up in flames in the early hours of the morning. And the fire department had attended after about it was probably about an hour after the fire had first kicked off. You could see evidence of fire in the security video. And that boat burnt virtually to the waterline. It was gutted. And because it was in a marina environment, then it also damaged four, five, or six boats all around it. In Florida, in, in, in North America, they tend to have a long side berth. So you'll get two boats in a slip alongside with a stern on the companionway walking in, into the marina. So the fire just spread to the left-hand side of the boat and then to the other boat on there, and then that one spread. So overall, we had about five boats significantly damaged. And the fire for the sports fish, uh, the 70-foot sports fishing boat, we did a, an investigation on that for more than a year because 
we have something called the scientific process, scientific method, where you uh, dig from the top down, exposing forensic evidence to see what the source of the fire was. So you're looking for the origin and cause. And every time we got to a new level, we found another piece of machinery that could have been the cause of the fire. So you have to pause everything and then those people put on notice. So what started out with probably eight or nine people standing on the dock a year and a half later, when we finally closed out that, uh, that fire claim, we probably had 40 attending surveyors and interested parties in the marina where the boat had been stored for all that time to try and find out what the cause was. And it wasn't determined because there was so much damage and the boat had sunk at the dock from the actions of the fire department and from the loss of integrity of the hull. It was very, very difficult to try and find out what the what the cause was. As I say, it was, it was virtually burnt down into the engine cell. So the deck above and then the flybridge had all collapsed down into that mass. So it was, it was an electrical fire. We determined it wasn't a chemical fire because we'd seen the underwater lights flickering, coming on, going up in intensity in the security video before the flames were actually seen. So we knew that there was something electrical going on. I think that's quite often the case, isn't it? When you have a fire that's as catastrophic as that, that it is almost impossible to determine what the actual cause of the, of the fire was. How do you think the trend in your electrical fires has changed in your time in the industry? And what do you think maybe the reason is for this? It depends on, that's, that's a difficult question to answer because here in North America, the vast majority of marine-based claims are on small yachts, small boats, which are only used at the weekends. There's no permanent crew. Of the luxury yachts, the mega yacht sector, I'm not that aware that they compare as far as the losses goes. The causes are significantly different. And because of the number of small boats, obviously the proportion of claims uh, and damages to small boats are, are much higher than on, in the mega yacht industry. But in 20 years, there's all, I, I understand and I, I'm aware that there's always been fires. The very nature of, of the market in that now there's more boats out there and they're built to a different standard should mean that they're safer. Certainly the newer boats from the high-end sector of the industry, the standards and the regulations are always followed in their construction. And so a trend as far as fires caused on those, in my experience, it comes down to poor maintenance or housekeeping on board. An electrical fire per se is difficult to pinpoint on those particular kinds of boats because everything, as I say, is, is, is well-made and generally well-maintained. But at the small end of the market, you've got owner users who will install their own equipment and perhaps use the wrong cable or perhaps even use non-marine components or non-marine equipment and put them in place just because it gets the job done and that leads to problems. As the market grows, it's, it's not going to reduce as, as far as we can see. There's going to be more and more of these boats sold. The incidence for the small boat fires is going to increase, but hopefully with regulation and training and applying standards to the mega yacht industry, we hopefully should see less occurrence if training is followed. What extent do these battery powered devices form a part of your scope when you're conducting surveys? It depends on the survey. If, if we've been asked to conduct a sales and purchase survey, then the age of the yacht determines how in-depth an electrical survey would be. If you've got a boat that's less than five years old and it's in class and it hasn't had its first anniversary class survey, then if the boat has been well-maintained and you can see that at a glance, the requirement to have a full electrical survey is less than on a, a, an older boat. If you go into, say, a boat that's 15, 25 years old, then it's highly recommended to have a full electrical survey carried out because of all the inherent 
problems you have on a moving piece of machinery. All the vibrations that the boat has been subjected to over its life and the aging that's gone on with the insulation of the cables and the vibrations that they've been subjected to and the age of the machinery that was installed that all determines an amount of risk for the elder of the boat so if we come in and we're doing a sales and purchase on a new boat we're less inclined to recommend a full electrical survey unless there's been historic problems but on an elderly boat and i use the term elderly anything from between 5 to 15 years old and beyond it depends on how the boat has been used if it's been only used 8 or 9 weeks a year by a private owner and he's spent lots and lots of money on it then really the maintenance has, has been up to date on the older boat and again you can see that by going in but due to the nature of of the machinery itself we would recommend to have a, a full electrical survey carried out on one of those by a, a dedicated electrical inspection team on, on kind of the topic of different types of survey, uh, two of our previous guests mentioned that they're conducting thermal imaging surveys. Is this something that, that you would normally conduct and kind of when would you do so? The kind of work that Aqualis Braemar do, if we were to do a thermal imaging survey, then each surveyor would have to be certified in the use of that equipment. So for liability, rather than each of our surveyors to become a thermal thermographer, I have to maintain their equipment, have it calibrated, and to maintain their certification. Again, we would go to a third party and engage the services of a qualified individual. What we have done as independent surveyors, if we're not doing a full thermographic survey, we will use the type of thermal camera that's readily available. You can buy for a couple of hundred dollars. Or if we want to go all out, we'd, we'd probably spend a couple of thousand dollars on one and then we'd share it within the group when it was needed. With that as a tool, we would go in and we would do a visual thermography exam of switchboards and cables and equipment looking for any clues as to hot spots or thermal loading which is unusual and with that it becomes a very useful tool to the surveyor in that they can see if, if, if there's a piece of equipment that's being stressed or if there's some switch gear that needs to be maintained or if there's some loose connections because the loose connections means that there'll be a higher resistance so there'll be a higher current passing through that and, and it's an indicator so as a tool for the surveyor Thermal imaging is, is very, very good. But if you want to do a full thermographic survey, then it takes some interpretation by somebody who is well-versed in that. So to stand myself or one of my colleagues with um, one of these handheld cameras alongside a thermographer who's got a $40,000 camera and vast experience in analyzing and, and post-processing the imagery, that is a, is a completely different kind of a survey. But as a tool, the thermographic camera, even the attachment that you can put onto your mobile phone is a useful tool to have. And I'd recommend it. If, if we go in cold without any history of the boat and perhaps you feel that the electrical installation is a bit tired, let's say, that would be a, an instance where we would use a thermal camera to have a look. It's interesting that you mentioned the kind of attachment to the to the phone because one of our future speakers mentioned that in relation to a claim that they'd seen where there was some smoldering on board the yacht and, and they couldn't determine where it was. And by the time it kind of caught fire, I think it was over a $2 million loss. So useful not just for surveyors, but also for, for guys on board as well. 
kind of going back to lithium ion batteries and, and toys, do you think there's enough widely shared information regarding the hazards associated with these batteries? I know that one of our previous speakers, Edward Henney, he's from the Cayman Islands, a surveyor from there, and, and the Cayman Islands themselves require risk assessments to be in place when charging these toys. However, obviously, these risk assessments can only be created effectively if the crew are aware of all the hazards associated with these batteries and, and their charging. Yeah, that leads to the aspect of crew training. And again, it's dependent on the size of the boat. If you've got one of these small personal underwater craft that's powered by a lithium battery, or maybe you've got a couple of them, the boat that you're on is only perhaps 80 feet long. It's a sailboat and they keep these in the lazarette on permanent charge. Then that poses a number of risks. But if you're a mega yacht and you've got electric tenders and the same watercraft or jet skis that are lithium powered, they tend to have a dedicated charging station. And the theory would follow that the people who are responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of those units should be trained or would be advised as to how to charge them and how not to charge them and the risks involved in that. So again, there's the spectrum from the smaller boat. You can buy these from the local marine supply store and you just plug it into a wall outlet on the boat and you imagine as you do at home on any of your chargers, your laptop, your phone or anything, you just plug them in and it's all self-regulating and there's nothing to worry about. Obviously, the marine environment is much different to a home environment or a shore-based business environment. And there have to be other precautions to be taken. If, if you're just pushing these things into a small confined space where the gases that are produced whilst they're being charged and things, fluctuations in temperature just because of the nature of the, uh, the compartment that you've got it into, these all put stresses on the lithium batteries themselves. And so the people should be aware of that. On the bigger boats, I think there is some training and there's some space for, for the crew to self-train, learn, read the manuals and speak amongst other crew as to what's good and what's bad. But I don't see any real sharing of information within the industry or notification of usage or incorrect usage of these systems. Over here in North America, obviously, we're a very litigious society. And if you have a product which is known to have failed under a number of circumstances, then we have recall documentation that goes out. But that's not really broadcast within the industry. I know that there's been a number of failures of this type of equipment. Then there's supposed to be uh, a recall notice sent out to uh, people who, who may have purchased that equipment or just for general consumption to the consumer. But within the marine industry, uh, where these underwater scooters and things are used, and there have been failures, I'm not aware that there's been any recall notices issued. And if there has been, it's not broadcast sufficiently enough to the end user it's, it's not for instance in the popular press or the or the magazines and newspapers that the crew would read so it's difficult for them to be made aware of it or they're not they're not made aware of it and that that should be broadcast more to the industry as a whole i was going to say that kind of steals the point of me i was going to ask you about kind of in the aviation industry i know that the marine industry takes a lot of the top examples from the aviation industry and there was a, a well-known electronics manufacturer who had a well-known faulty piece of equipment they produced and they quite quickly put a blanket ban on carrying that device on board and it's just a shame that similar isn't done in, in the industry because there's as you say there are known faulty pieces of equipment which are recalled but there's no platform out there to to share this with crews and without this, the sharing of this information then 
valuable lessons can't be learned. Well, one of the things I've seen in the course of fire investigations with, with electrical engineers and with fire investigators who, who do marine investigation as well, is that they are aware of systems and equipment that are installed on boats that have failed. And even on these surveys where you may have 10, 15, 20 surveyors all, all milling around, looking out for their interested parties' uh, interests, they don't share that information. Or if they do, it's, it's kind of under a low breath. And, and the fear of that is that if, the reason for that is the fear that if you speak out of turn, I think, then because it is a litigious society, they could end up being penalized or pursued for defamation of, of the product. Because as ever, there's non-discretionary clauses, non-disclaimers and things that, that people tend to sign. Uh, and that again is corporate America. I'm talking about North America predominantly at this time. So the interests of the corporation seem to be paramount when it comes to their good name and their reputation as far as the products they produce go. Whereas if the products are out there and people are using them and they need to be aware of these risks. So I think that is certainly a facet of the of the situation that needs to be brought into focus. Yeah, definitely. Staying with the lithium-ion batteries, do you know of any kind of industry standards or guidelines which listeners may find beneficial? I, I know that the MCA have produced MGN 550, which is kind of gives guidance for the safe design, installation and operation of lithium-ion batteries. But do you have any other, other examples? Well, you have the industry test protocols and European standards, but that's really for people who are producing the batteries and distributing them. So there are, there are industry requirements to, to provide this information and to carry out testing in the correct way so that they can be sold on the open market. That's a very heavy read. If you really want to get into a good read, then you start reading IE 5322 or UL 5622 or whatever the numbers are, they are dense publications and they're really there for people who wish to manufacture these components and then put them through testing so that they can be sold on the open market. But the industry, the marine industry, probably like the aviation industry, should have a better means to safeguard personnel and property if these items are being put onto boats. So perhaps there should be an industry standard for marine toys, legislation perhaps, I don't know, or a guidance, guidance notes of that order. But again, if your product doesn't meet the standards dictated to by that memorandum from who, whoever the authority is, be it class, fag, or governmental, then your business is being penalized. And you could fight back against that for because your your testing says that your equipment is safe, but who at some arbitrary body determines that it's not. So your your business is being affected. So it's, it's a mire. It's a, it's a swamp that you don't really want to, to get into. And the end user, the people who are just chartering these boats or buying these boats, and they just want to go out into the bay and enjoy themselves, it's not really visible on their radar as to what should and shouldn't be done with these toys. Yeah. Uh, kind of moving on from the toys, the club has seen several fire claims attributed to lighting issues, in particular retrofitted LED lighting. Do you have any advice for uh, yacht managers when it comes to retrofitting lighting on board? I think retrofits, refits, there are two types of owner. Those people who can afford anything in the world and those people who are, are working to a, a budget. And there's a middle ground that both of those characters, people, can meet on and that is a sensible price for equipment that is approved 
people at one end of the scale will have gold plated this and gold plated that and, and and it'll be absolutely fabulous to look and see and so when they go into a refit money is no object but then you'll get the other end of the spectrum you'll have owner operators who this is their livelihood but they're not mega millionaires and so they will want to make savings where they can and they may decide to use equipment install um machinery and, and components that are of a lesser standard or perhaps don't meet the requirements for marine industry. I see this quite often in in small boats over here in the US where you'll have domestic appliances put in and household wiring put in so solid copper cable will be put in where it should be flexible boat cable. But from the outside, it kind of looks the same. So that person who's saving costs perhaps is jeopardizing the, the integrity of the boat and he won't authorize the use of more robust and approved equipment. He'll try to do it at a, at a cheap price. So they should really pay the price for marine installation. If you're not buying from a recognized engineering fabricator, then you're going to run into problems because you just don't have any understanding of where those cheaper components have come from and what standard they've been built to, if any standard at all. It could It could just be poorly constructed but looks acceptable it could be a copy of something else so unless you've got an underwriter's laboratory stamp on it that says it meets the criteria for its purpose you shouldn't be using it but some people will and perhaps that's where lighting fires have come into on some of the, the claims that you're seeing if you buy approved equipment uh, it's going to be more expensive so you shouldn't be trying to save save costs just in that because and what's the old adage uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure those lights might be 20-30% more expensive, but if you're going to resell the boat in 10 or 15 years' time, you don't want to have to have done three electrical refits or have to have dealt with a fire in the meantime for all the negative impacts that's going to have on the price of the boat. As you said, Anthony, your experiences uh, with the large yachts. What challenges do you think this brings with the increasing size of yachts uh, when it com comes to uh, yacht fires? In particular electrical fires the larger yachts that come out of the northern europe shipyards are built to extremely high standards some of the the ways that they're built even exceed the, the required standards some of them the owners of the boat although they got the name brand say you want to buy it from a northern holland shipyard they've got the name but they've been so interfering in the build process that it's not really that kind of a boat that the shipyard is, is is known for. So those cost savings that I've described for the buyer are absolutely pushed to the fore. So the majority of mega yachts, they're built with the understanding of what their use is and what the long lifetime of the boat is going to be. And so the, the mega, mega yachts, like the 80 meters, 100 meters, they will be built in such a way that if you're using these lithionic batteries on watercraft, their charging would the, there would be a charging station within the Mediterranean garage. There's, there's a better way of calling it, but where the where the tenders and the equipment are stored, there'll, there'll be a charging station, and those charging stations will have the manufacturer's charger, a bank of chargers, and the equipment will be held in racks, and these chargers will monitor the the, the charging current and the temperature. Some even monitor the individual cell voltages and cell temperatures and send up an alarm to the, the charger, which will shut down that cell if it, if it exceeds temperature or charge current, or it'll ramp it down, it, it will monitor it. So the bigger boats have got all this technology available to them at a higher cost. So the mega yachts, in theory, they've got 
ample crew. They've got crew training budgets and they've got crew with the time to make sure that the, uh, the maintenance is carried out correctly. You'll have dedicated crew for the, the water toys and the deck equipment. So in theory, if the flag requirements for training and on the use of this equipment is, is followed, then the risk shouldn't be significantly higher just because you've got a bigger boat. My understanding is if you've invested in the training of your crew, you, you're giving them responsibility for some of these toys, which are tens of thousands of dollars. You don't want any old Wally to go in and, and, and just put the wrong charger onto it or install the wrong battery or, or just charge it in a puddle of water or do something. They tend to be professional crew nowadays and, and they've all gone to college and they've all got these certifications. You still meet some crew who have just fallen into it a bit like I did, but it was a completely different world then. Now you've got all this certification to acquire and it costs the individual a fair amount of money and a lot of effort in order to pass it. So you've got a far more professional crew than you had 20, 30 years ago. And it's seen when, you, when we step on board these things that they, they present themselves well, the boat's in immaculate condition and they all follow ISM procedures and their, their safety is very much to the fore. You can just see it. Some boats you go onto and it, it's lazy. You can see that they're not following even sensible guidelines, never mind regulated guidelines. So... I don't think that just because it's a bigger boat, you, you have a higher risk. I think it can be less of a risk if, if the boat is run and managed appropriately. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Although these bigger yachts obviously are becoming more and more electrically dominated. As you say, they're more exposed to regulations such as SOLAS, ISM. And as you say, the training increases massively, a lot more professional. And as one of our future guests, Edward, mentioned from, from the Cayman Islands, a lot of these yachts now have ETOs on board, which obviously they're there specifically for the electrical equipment. So as the electrical equipment on board does increase, then as you say, not necessarily the risk of these electrical fires increases proportionally. On a bit of a tangent here, with COVID-19 kind of potentially leading to more yachts being birthed, and this potentially kind of going back to your example earlier, resulting in a heightened risk of fire on a neighbouring yacht spreading, do you have any practical guidance for captains or owners on reducing the risk to birth yachts? Yes. If, again, it's all dependent on the size. If it's not a liverboard yacht, take it we're talking mega yachts or boats in the, in the order of 100 feet or so, or crude yachts, let's say. What I've, my experience, and I think this is still the case, is come along the weekend, then you just have one watchkeeper on board. And that watchkeeper, in theory, is supposed to be around for the 24 hours a day. Well, if it's a shared watch, then one day it's one guy, one day it's the next guy. So they should be aware of how to raise a fire alarm or they should certainly not just be covering from a hangover from the night before under, under a doona in the cruise mess. They are responsible for the safety of not only their vessel, but the vessels alongside. So perhaps a boat alongside goes up and if they're really comfortable, it, these boats are so well built, you can't hear the fire alarms going off when you're down in the cruise mess on the boat adjacent. It takes somebody really coming on board and alerting you to the fact that there's an issue. So my view is that you should have a designated person on board who's sober and aware of the surroundings and the ongoing situation around the boat. There should be training for all days of the week. So when you're on a normal working week, you've got multiple crew around you. So at any time of the day, the alarm could go up and they would have to respond in a particular way. If say on a Tuesday night, the alarm goes off at two o'clock in the morning, you're pretty much likely to have all the crew on board and available to you. But if that alarm goes off at two o'clock on a Sunday morning, you may only have one person. And so there should be 
training for the crew under all of those different scenarios what to do, whether it's an evacuation, whether it's tackle the fire or alert the services, the fire services, the marina authority, or just to raise the alarm for the boats around you. But certainly there should be training and an awareness of what to do for the crew. When you are attached to the shore power pedestal or the shore power transformer, uh, it's up to the ship's crew and the operator of the boat to make sure that they've got the correct cables and to make sure that those cables are in good order. Visually looking at the cable from the outside is one thing, but you have to be aware that a hotspot could occur in the plug itself if it's worn or damaged or corroded or there's been arcing on it. So good at maintenance and housekeeping is is essential, even for something as simple as, as the shore power cord at both ends, where it goes into the boat and where it goes onto the shore connection. Similarly, some of these boats are now years and years and years old, and the socket that the shipboard side of the cable plugs into, it may look okay on the pins on the outside because uh, it's protected from the environment, but there could be poor connections on the inside of the plug. So if you're going to be on the shore power for a period of time carrying a high amount of current, you should make sure that the ship's engineer perhaps by use of a thermal camera, make sure that all the terminations are good on the shore power connection. I think that's excellent. That's really, really useful advice for members who may be seeing their boats more moored uh, with the current circumstances in the world, the current situation with COVID. Kind of more generally now, I know you've touched upon training and maintenance, but what other actions could our members take to reduce their exposure to these types of incidents? I think it's uh, housekeeping, really. Make sure that... Uh... The planned maintenance is followed uh, and make sure that you use equipment and materials that are fit for the purpose. Training of your personnel, they're looking after a hugely valuable asset. And then they're looking at, well, depends on your priorities. They're looking after their crew members and then they're looking after your asset and then they're looking after themselves. And so, and then the environment. So they've got all of that responsibility. So, so give them the, the tools to do a good job. Predominantly, that starts with training and then give them the time and the ability to carry out that maintenance. And then when the maintenance is done and the housekeeping is done, make sure it's done properly. And if you're running a tight ship, then uh, it should be a safe ship as well, provided you're following guidelines and and following all the rules for, for that particular boat and the training manual and the operating manual for the boat. Brilliant. And finally, what are your predictions on how this trend may develop? Do you, do you see there being a reduction in the number of these claims or an increase? Or Because of the nature of the, the environment, we're going to sell more and more of these boats. The higher end of the market, we're going to sell more of those. They're going to get perhaps a little... I said this years ago, when I worked on a 50-meter boat, I thought that was the be-all and end-all. And then ultimately, I worked on a, an 80-meter boat, and then I went up to a 90-meter boat as a temporary engineer. And I, and I thought, there's, there's no way that these boats can get any bigger. But they do. So the, the top end of the, the market, at the extreme end of the, the, the wealth end of the market, it could go as big as, as you want. There wouldn't be many boats, but it could get into cruise ships size if somebody felt that that's what they wanted. But the growth in the sector, certainly in North America, is on boats worth under a million dollars. And that market hasn't really been affected by COVID. In fact, they're going gangbusters on selling those kinds of boats. The top end of the market, the shipyards were busy. That particular type of clientele, they're going to buy a boat whether they want to. They're going to build a boat when they want to. So that end of the market hasn't really been affected by the COVID situation. The middle market, anything from a million dollars to, say, $15 million for a boat, yeah, that's that's been impacted. And the sales has been pinched because of COVID. 
but that just means that once we come out of it, people are going to be hungry in that price market to buy more bulk. So I think there's going to be more more bulk sold, and therefore there's going to be more risk. At the lower end of the market, what you've got are these off-the-shelf boats that you can buy anywhere from a quarter of a million dollars up to a million and a half, two million dollars, something like that. But they're built almost on a production line and their price margins, their profit margins are dictated by, by how much they can make savings on the construction. And if they're trying to make saving in the construction side of things, then safety might be pinched. So on the lower end of the market, you might continue to see the same level of loss and risk as you do currently. Did I just say that right? You might see increased risks because of the number of the boats that are out there, exposure to risk because of the higher number of boats that are out there, and the fact that the constructors are trying to save costs and perhaps cutting costs in the wrong way. So that sector of the market, you're going to have to keep a closer eye on. The middle of the market, that's a refit kind of zone where lots of these boats are going to go back into refit. They're going to be updated. And as I touched on previously, really, you should be trying to make sure that it's done properly with the correct equipment and following regulations and standards that are set governmentally and by the flag and by class. So overall, at the lower end of the market, I think you're probably going to see more more risk in the middle of the market, perhaps the same, provided people are following the guidelines set out by industry. And perhaps at the top end of the market, as I touched on before, you should see better training and equal construction standards and the use of water toys and things on those boats is going to increase but the lithium battery technology is, is kind of reached its, its maximum it's getting towards its maximum so either there's going to become a new technology which might be safer or the manufacturers of those batteries are going to concentrate less on power density because they've kind of reached it uh, and they're going to concentrate more on safety and construction standards for those batteries. So you might well see that there'll be a tailing off of lithium battery fires due to more investment from manufacturers and awareness and research from the manufacturers of those, those batteries in order to sell more into the market. And if they can say that our batteries are safer, then the marine industry will use that brand more than the other, which might come from a, a country in the Far East. Thank you, Anthony. I think it was a very insightful conversation concerning yacht electrical fires. I think you certainly provided our listeners with lots of useful, practical, technical information on how our members can potentially reduce their exposure to these kind of claims. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you found it interesting, please head over to the Ship Owners Club website and listen to the other episodes in this series. The next episode is with Edward Henney, Flag States Surveyor for Cayman Islands, and he'll be providing us with a Flag States perspective on this topic.